0: Welcome to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Today I'm joined by IATP's Executive Director, Juliette Majot, and we are talking about one of IATP's foundational documents that was written by Mark Ritchie and Kevin Ristow in 1987. It's called Crisis by Design A Brief Review of U.S. Farm Policy. Uh, Juliette, this Is one of a couple of documents that really shaped IATP in the early years. Can you just tell us what the document, what the uh, the hypothesis of the document was?
1: Sure. You know, um, in 1987, we were really uh, heavily, heavily into a crisis across the United States uh, for with the disappearance of family farms. The number of family farms was disappearing very quickly. Uh, People were Uh, somewhat aware of the crisis because they could see it happening around them. But there wasn't very much analysis out there about what brought this crisis about beyond uh, very locally sourced um, uh, causes that people understood within their general communities. But I think that Mark Ritchie uh, and uh, Kevin Ristow knew that somehow uh, in a way that could be understood and in a way that uh, at the same time wouldn't back off of the depth of analysis necessary to explain this terrible phenomenon, um, that they needed to be able to explain it um, it concisely, clearly, um, and in explaining it, identify ways to uh, attack the problem, as it were. And so they wrote... uh, in 18 pages, a small pamphlet called Crisis by Design that presented a brief review of the history of U.S. farm policy and what that policy um, said that actually led to outcomes like the loss of family farms in the United States. Um, That policy, those policies, they were able to take a close look at and talk about policies in the early 1900s and mid-1900s that were good for family farmers and that were actually put there with the objective of helping family farmers stay on the land. And they also looked at policies that followed that were very intentionally designed to drive people off of the land. In rural America, um, so that you could see that this farm crisis wasn't an accident, but it was actually designed through United States farm policies. I think more importantly than that, they were able to see that that agriculture policy, agricultural policy, uh, had a direct uh, line to what they saw as the beginning of diminu- diminution of of democracy in the United States, and that as a sector agriculture uh, was an incredibly important one in terms of what was then generally understood and believed to be an important part of uh, American life, which was the ability to live on the land uh, in the United States and to do so in a way where you could make a living, you could pass your land to your family. Um, These were all, I think, taken as, as givens in a kind of, Uh, American thought. These policies actually came, uh, ran extremely counter to what we would think of as as an American value of the ability to live freely on the land and to uh, be able to do that and support your family now and in the future by being a farmer.
0: Um. You know the interesting thing to me uh, about this is that they make it real clear um, you know you talk you talk it really is policy it's government who's intervening here It' was government who created the the parity pricing um, you know you can talk about the kind of colonial history of family farming and in, in terms of giving away land, but the idea was that lots of smallholders on the land was was good for U.S. values and so the, the government actually worked to give people that land or, you know, in order to promote agriculture. Um, yes. Uh, but then it was government, uh, you know, enacting uh, policy that did away with that, right? And so I think we talk about, a lot about the market um, and market prices and below market prices, but uh, what's missing in the conversation a lot today is that the laws uh, really dictate how, um, how family farmers are going to fare, right?
1: They really do dictate how family farmers will fare. And I think, um, of course, laws, laws come from the government and uh, different kinds of laws come from the government at different times. Um, you know, recently, uh, uh, I've been reading quite a lot about the idea of policy being built on the obvious, or the side of policy emanating from some sort of popular stand that seems to be known uh, by the government i think that there's a some fallacy in that if we if we look at what obvious is what obvious means some idea that there are shared values by a certain number of people or that there's some sort of um, understanding such that people can assume that something is obvious. I think at one point in the United States, there was little doubt that to many, uh, many Americans um, would say that it's obvious that farmers are important to the country. It's obvious that a way of life of living on the land and, and taking care of the land are important features of American life. Um, I, would, I would argue these things aren't so obvious anymore. And I think they started to become less and less obvious when, um, when, when large scale agribusiness started to become much, much more concentrated, started to become extraordinarily influential on policymakers in Washington. And what was obvious to them was that their future growth and the future growth of their markets would be dependent on trade, on expanding their markets further and further and further um, so that those markets continue to grow And then in order to do that, they needed to have much more control of the sector than they had control over a whole bunch of individual family farms. Much, much better to get some sort of um, uh, economics of scale to to narrow the window for who has power over food production and who has power over commodity production. Um, allow those powerful few to consolidate and consolidate and consolidate. And then we, we finally reached the point, it was obvious to them, um, that um, this would put the power and wealth in, in their hands. And, um, and, and this is where these policies, were really uh, driven and, and where they came from. The idea that um, that corporate agribusiness could become synonymous in Americans' minds with even the word farmers. Uh, let, let corporate ag take care of this. Let's have very, very big, highly industrialized farms. Uh, this was a very logical uh, and, and obvious I think, uh, kind of strategy for them. And I I think what Mark Ritchie and Kevin Ristow understood and, and were able to articulate so clearly and what really became foundational for the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy was that if these policies are fully realized, they would not only forced the relocation of farmers and their families and extended farm related businesses, um, but this would really damage the cultural and economic fabric. Of agriculturally centered rural communities across the United States. They knew that the that there would be billions and billions of dollars taken out of the hands of working farm families and putting those dollars into the hands of corporations and banks and speculators. Um, they knew that 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 these policies that were intentionally designed to end family farming in the United States would lead to overproduction and price deflation as farms got bigger and bigger and export markets became the kind of holy grail of agriculture. They knew that these policies that were going to drive family farms off the land would ensure uh, would almost guarantee that there would be more environmental degradation, particularly to soil and to water, as as the big farms required more and more input and as the loss of productivity to the soil became a reality. And they knew, too, um, that as family farms r- did begin to disappear, as families were losing everything, as there was a growing frustration uh, and and lack of ability to have a livelihood on the land to ensure that your children would have a lit- livelihood on to ensure that your children would have a livelihood on the land uh, that people would eventually become bitter and very very disengaged and angry and would would really take extreme positions. In order to protect themselves, um, something that we 've seen uh, in rural communities as well as suburban communities as well as many communities in the United States, but certainly across rural america uh, in, in in the clear frustration that was voiced during the last u s election
0: yeah i mean what 's interesting you know I want to I I talk more about that in a minute, but y- you know you, you did mention. Um, the impact on the environment um, uh, and uh, you know the other thing they talk about in the pamphlet is the impact on farmers around the world and I think that was a really interesting um, part of the pamphlet um, is making that connection that what happens in U.S. farm policy kind of has a ripple effect around the world um, one, I think because it's so big. And two, because, I, you know, if, if corporations consolidate their power here, when they're um, expanding out into global markets, it allows them to concentrate them, their power in other countries and, and control the entire supply chain going across borders. You know, so it, that part of it kind of stuck out to me. Um, as being really like where IATP has found that niche is, um, is really showing that connection, how something that's happening in one country is having a global in- implication, right?
1: IATP right from the beginning thought of food systems and commodities uh, and, and farming and agriculture as a global proposition. Uh, this isn't surprising. We hear large-scale agribusiness uses this argument all the time. We need to feed the world. This is, a, this is something that the corporations use. It's not, it's not a line that IATP has ever used, because I think that um, we certainly understand that um, 60% sixty or 70% of the world's population uh, does very well feeding themselves, thank you very much. This is not what export agriculture um, is actually about. The, the, um, the success of the, of the movement to save the family farm um, was notable at the time. It was an incredibly fine effort that was made for over two decades, three decades, four decades, um, widely documented. It rocketed to a national level. Uh, the debate over the future of family farms. It engaged thousands and thousands of farmers, ranchers, and and, and their supporters. And it Willie ruined, Nelson. And Willie Nelson. Let's not forget Willie Nelson. Um, and Neil Young. Don't leave out. Um, God forbid. Um, it it built you know international solidarity in that, uh, and I think that that solidarity was incredibly important for another kind of emerging aspect of understanding why agriculture policy in any country, in any region, um, is so incredibly influential and influenced by international trade agreements. Um, These trade agreements, um, to which large-scale agribusiness is incredibly influential, have the ability to literally lock in a particular agricultural model, highly industrialized, highly centralized, highly intensive, farming based on export and expanding markets um i think that the uh as as powerful and as important and as diverse as that movement has been um, it has not been able to um, really slow down or um, halt the incredible strength and determination of Uh, corporate interests. And we see that very clearly right now. So much has changed since 1987. Even the way we look at trade agreements, we used to think always as these agreements as being made between governments. That's who's making them. Well, kinda, but kinda not because what what we have are transnational corporations. Um, they are not located in one place, they are located in multiple countries, and they're looking for agreements that are going to be good for their business, no matter where that business is, uh, at the cost of, um, probably at the cost of other aspects of the agreement as the negotiations are are. Um, continue to go on. Is it correct to say that the United States is negotiating a trade agreement with Mexico or negotiating a trade agreement um, across borders? I would say that even that analysis is outdated Um, and that what we're looking at are uh, levels of influence that really demand our paying attention to how agreements are made and who they are between. Um, otherwise, we really can't understand how to try to influence those agreements, what role they have in our government. Our government, for example, in the United States pretty much abdicated its responsibility for trade agreements by, by approving a fast-track agreement and simply giving the President of the United States the ability to sign an agreement with very little, gov- with very little congressional oversight. So yeah. you know, we have to reassess
0: yeah i i want to I want to get into that a, a little bit because I think it 's really important and an important part of the uh, pamphlet um, you know you you had mentioned earlier um people becoming better um, and people kind of turning to extreme ideas and you know the two thousand and sixteen election and uh, Donald Trump kind of exemplified that right um, you know that in the thirty years twenty nine years since um, crisis by design was written um, there really haven't been a lot of meaningful alternatives that have been put forward to rural populations and family farmers. You know, I think, you know, you see sort of the counter movement, right, the local foods movement, um, organic farming, but as far as, you know, and I think this is true to an extent as well in manufacturing, is that we never really thought about what a just transition might even look like if we were to couple it with these trade agreements and And there was no alternative, and so you know i guess I guess my question is where did civil society drop the ball, or how did we drop the ball in the thirty years in between crisis by design and the the election of donald trump
1: well i don 't think that civil society um, was in some ways i don 't think civil society was actually in the center of this, farmers were in the center of this. They are part of civil society, of course. And I don't think it was a matter of dropping the ball. I think farmers lost their farms. And I think that that um, anyone who went through that and anybody who owns a farm now who is considers themselves a family farmer and who very likely also has one to two to three other jobs to keep that farm going. Um, is very likely to have gone through um, the crisis of in, in the 1980s um, and they are still raw from it and they are still calculating every penny and trying to understand how they can continue to make a living. Some of them were able to consolidate farmland um, and to um, get bigger and not get out as the, Mm (laughs) as the, as the saying went. So I think, So the important thing now um, I think is to revisit what it is um, that we think is obvious about what's going on in, in, in both internationally in terms of food, but in terms of commodities in terms of why these commodities are being produced, in terms of the kind of dietary structures that we have, in terms of the amount of livestock that's being produced. um, I think that we have to revisit a number of questions if we're gonna answer the question, why bother Mm
0: -hmm.
1: to aspire to agriculture and trade and food systems that are good for people and farmers and ecosystems and social justice? Why do we bother? Mm -hmm. With this question, what do we know about the uh, how how strongly do we believe that agriculturally centered um, uh, rural communities depend on agriculture for their long term integrity? How strongly do we understand um, whether or not agriculture is still tied to the future of democracy in our country? as Mark Ricci and Kevin Ristow put forth in 1987. Um, this was an amazing thing to, to say. And they immediately quoted um, former Supreme Court Justice Brandeis, who said something along the lines of, you know, in this country, you can have democracy or you can have most of the wealth in the hands of a few, but you can't have both. Um, this is now well documented and we know of course that we now have most of the wealth in the hands of the few. a lot of people would argue that we still have democracy. well that's a pretty good question, do we? and what does that have to do with rural america? what does it have to do what does agriculture have to do with a shift that of course of course came about because of a number of different sectors, not the agriculture sector alone. But when we look at agriculture and trade policy in the United States, in what ways have those policies contributed to um, an an upswell of frustration in rural communities, a a desire to somehow let people know that there is an ongoing uh, extremely serious Uh, determination on the part of rural communities to thrive and that they will make their voice heard uh, to have them thrive Um, and a a time in which um, the 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 spread between rural communities and urban communities is being I think probably artificially played up as a division across the country.
0: And so in this context, um, you know, you've undertaken uh, putting forward kind of a platform for us at IATP to think about what would an update of Crisis by Design look like. Just talk about a couple, I mean, you've sort of talked about it already, but maybe just a little more explicitly talk about some things that you see immediately that have really changed that. Uh, an update of this kind of foundational document might tackle. Like, you know, the thing mm-hmm. that it doesn't tackle, for example, just to name one is climate change.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. It doesn't. uh, It it um, it didn't look out forward and say how would the um, objectives of these policies that were intentionally designed to get people off the land and consolidate the power of agribusiness, what does that mean for climate change? Well, now we know quite a lot about what that meant for, what that meant, and what that means for climate change. Um, uh, We have an industry that has largely been ignored in terms of, of climate change. And not surprisingly, we have um, a lot of people who are associated with that that sector who uh, for a long time were climate change deniers. That's changing. Um, but it certainly put uh, a, a big pause in, in the political will across the country to do something about climate change. Um, we have... Uh, you know, at the time that family farms were really disappearing, we were ju- we were right at the beginning of big data, of the ability to uh, to actually crunch the kinds of to collect and crunch the kinds of data that are available to us now. This was before we were doing digital trading. This is before uh, commodities were being um, bundled and 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 sold on future futures markets in a way that um further distorts the price the price and and further uh puts more volatility into the market um we at the time that this was happening um i think that the word supply management had only started to become uh, a kind of verboten phrase in the u.s context and um certainly um, that has difference the 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 size of of free trade agreements the uh, and the the chaos of certainly the last year of of uh, a complete lack of understanding or a lack of respect for any trade rules that we do have um, has certainly come into the fore. We know more and are and and are much more apt to uh, understand the, the, both the whiteness of some of the agriculture in the United States and, um, and dig further into the long history of slavery and agriculture that has virtually played out in every corner of the world when it comes to how food and commodities are grown. Uh, where are we with that now? Do we have slavery in agriculture in the United States? This is, this is a real question and one that needs to be um, closely looked at. The role of immigrants and immigrant labor in in agriculture in the United States is something that was not in 1987. It was certainly it was certainly visible and it was there. But in terms of this short analysis, um, it was not there. Um, as clearly. I think that, uh, that, uh, that uh, around the world, the civil society, if anything, is much stronger in terms of, uh, of shared solidarity around issues of social justice, issues of environmental integrity. And I think that that's something that can be looked at in a, in a, in a much different way, in a much more powerful way when we look at what are the strategies that we need to use to move forth. But before we get to strategies, we really have to understand um, what, what is it, what is obvious about the situation we find ourselves in when it comes to food and when it comes to agricultural commodities, when it comes to land use, when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, farmers, and, um, and and restate what we see, and why we see it. We have uh, the USDA uh, census will be coming up, but it will give us uh, a lot of new data to look at and say where are we really now, and what do we know, and what can we trust about the values of the movement that we have always been a part of, and mm-hmm. what and how can we? What is it about those values that we need to reassess to? reaffirm. We haven't had to make an argument in a long time about some of the very, very basic truths that we carry with us, such as the value of the family farm. And when you don't make that argument for a long time, then you, you fall out of practice with it. And what is, what it, what is obvious starts to change and morph.
0: Yeah, man. That's a lot to think about. Um, I mean, no, it really is. It's pretty fundamental stuff that we're having to reassess and reevaluate. And, you know, one other thing that really strikes me about the situation that is kind of different now is uh, 150 years ago, 170 years ago, after the Civil War, when you really saw the explosion of family farms in the U.S., um, to an extent, and I know this is a very different situation, but kind of to an extent, you're seeing um, the rise of small farms in, um, in alternative markets, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, that's you know, true. We, you know, we, we work with the Hmong American Farmers Association, which is farmers on very small plots. And uh, whether it's farm to school or farmers markets or, you know, the, uh, the farmers who are producing for the markets that um, Ben wrote about in the missing the, the market paper, you know, organic, grass fed, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like in addition to assessing the loss of family farms in that, what I guess would be sort of the, the traditional family farm, um, we have the opportunity to do things very different in the promotion and protection of this kind of newer family farm or small farm mm-hmm. um and uh, i mean i know we're kind of speculating here but what are your thoughts about that
1: well i think i think that there there is a lot of opportunity and there is uh, you know there is an explosion of small plot farms in, and, 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 and small food producers uh, this, is a, this is extremely important to to watch and there are organizations that are um, are extremely good at understanding how this is working and how to bring uh, young farmers into farming and to encourage young farmers to come into farming. The land stewardship uh, project is one of those organizations that does incredible. Um, work with with young farmers and farmers of all types. Um, um, the 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 rural coalition is is another one. The National Family Farm Coalition is another one. There's a um, you know this has always been true that there have been incredible organizations that work on this. Uh, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy has tried to contribute to this by being able to provide a kind of big picture analysis of the trends that we're able to see, um, and the structural parts of our economy that are very, very difficult for people to get around as 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 small farmers, or I should better say that are in the that, that are obstacles mm-hmm. to change on a to transformative change, and uh, we see that we still see that in trade policies. We see that in the way that the U.S. Farm Bill is now written. Um, we see that in the way in the consolidation of large-scale food and agribusiness. In in that whole sector, we see that concentration. We see it in almost ironically, as much as farmers of any size want to see less regulation than what they have to deal with now. Um, you know, we see that in in a, a, the inability to distinguish between less regulation and Keeping the good stuff and making regulation better instead of simply making it less um, than what it is now, um, I think uh, we see it in in organizations like um, uh, some of the bigger organic organizations that have have built significantly sized cooperatives of farmers um, they have they have had their demons to face and, and uh, it 's interesting to understand what those are. How does family farming fit into an economic system that more and more and more is built um, to make it more difficult for those family farms to exist? So these are, these are um, systems questions, and they're, they're, not, um, they're not in and of themselves overwhelming questions. They're, they're only overwhelming um, if we allow them to be. And if we allow them to be overwhelming, then the first thing that our, our nature tells us to do is don't pay any attention to them. Just pay attention to the very complicated but smaller problems that we can do something about next week, or we can do something about in two months, or we can do something about in three years, or in five years. And I think that I think that we have to hold on and, and, and wrestle with those questions that we don't have answers to necessarily, um, but that we, we must insist on continuing to ask and, um, and take apart. Because if we pretend for a minute that how Wall Street trades commodities doesn't matter to the price of those commodities, or if we pretend for a minute that trade policies have nothing to do with the way we do agriculture, and that therefore they have nothing to do with the health of our rivers or our aquifers. And that has nothing to do with the fate of uh, undocumented immigrants in the United States and their ability to survive. It's just impossible to deny that these things are connected. And, and unless we, if we deny that, then we're not being we're not being true we're not being honest with ourselves or with anybody else
0: how do you go about thinking or you know what is your thought process where do you begin when you are trying to develop the systems analysis for something like trade like because it is really daunting and if, you know if I were someone I mean, myself. When I, 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 you know, I'm kind of immersed in it, and I still feel pretty overwhelmed when I'm thinking about some of these big systems. But what? How do you go about coming to a conclusion or exploring uh, something that is as overwhelming and daunting as trade policy?
1: I ask other people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, that's you know, that's uh, um, I ask lots of people. I mean, we all do. Um, Mm -hmm. I think. I think it's that you don't start from you have to understand that the starting point um, is other th- often than the first question that comes into mind. The first question that comes into mind is, you know, is trade good? <laughs> uh and that's that's not the question that you're really that you're really going for. You know, the question that you're really going for um I think is how do we govern ourselves? How how do we make rules uh, for a civil society? Civil to, civil in the normative sense. Civil in the in the sense of a society that is good and and cares for each other. A society that pays attention to the most marginalized people. A society that's interested in social equity. A society that's interested in democratic principles. Um, Uh, environmental integrity cultural integrity uh, the the understanding of history as we move forward the caring about those who have less than ourselves and I think that when you start there then you have some kind of a theoretical framework to start with to look at things and say well how does this fit in with that I worked once with an author, a professor, and he was writing a book on uh, land reform. Um, I asked him a similar question to this, uh, the one that you just asked me. Where do you start? How do you start uh, any sort of analysis? And he said, uh, because he was a professor and he tended to use Latin phrases, he said, never forget, Juliet, cui bono, cui bono, who benefits? Who benefits? That was his starting point. He wanted to know who benefits, where is the cost incurred, and who's benefiting uh, at the end of the day. And I still, uh, and I still, I still rely on that a great deal to think about where to start as we look at um, at at major policies about which people often uh, know know very little, and and I I kind of insist that it it doesn't matter that people don't know very much about them in terms. It doesn't matter to whether or not they're important. They mm-hmm. are important whether people know about them or not. Part of our job is to understand them and to let people know about them. That's mm-hmm. a big, that's a big job. But I, I, I don't like to go back on, on a, on some sort of deciding what's important by deciding what people are screaming about the most or, or what people seem to know the most about. Um, in other words, uh, I don't follow the polls in determining what I think is important uh, in terms of, of agricultural policy or trade policy or the myriad policies that, that intersect with those.
0: Yeah, so as we're um, revamping crisis by design, how, how are we taking that and applying that, the, you know, what you just talked about, that big picture system thinking to a 30-year-old piece of literature in order to, to, to bring it into the modern world?
1: Well, I think what we're doing is we're taking a 30-year-old piece of literature and saying, what is the next chapter here? How much more do we know about what is in here than we knew 30 years ago? Um, where does that bring us now? What are those changes in context that, that supercharge some of the assumptions and uh, objectives of policies now compared to what the objectives of those policies were then? You know, even the title Crisis by Design, I think at the time was quite a, quite a new way of looking at things. You know, And the word crisis now is so over, it's so used that, that mm-hmm. uh, what was interesting about that was the by design part. And um, even that has been um, picked up and carried a, a, a long way. Naomi Klein has looked at, at you know, crisis, crisis, after crisis after crisis after crisis, and insisted that and 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 put forth a very very cogent argument that that this is intentional, that one crisis following another crisis following another crisis is in its way intentional. Um, why? Because somebody benefits from that. And as we've seen, the somebody's who benefit from that continue to be a small, smaller, smaller, smaller group of people. If we're talking about the holding of wealth and the power that that brings, uh, and that continues to consolidate. So I think that what we what we are looking at now is is what do we what do we think should be the objectives of policy? We have stated we know uh, we are. We are, we are clear that we think that we should have agriculture and trade policies that are good for people, and good for farmers, and good for social justice, and good for ecosystems. That's not an impossible ask. Is it difficult? Darn right it's difficult. But you know, when was policy ever easy? When was social justice ever easy? Never? Oh, these things are all big, big
0: questions. All right. Well, Juliet Majo, thank you for uh, talking to me on the podcast today.
1: Sure enough. Thanks, Josh.
0: You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I want to thank Andrew Ariso for editing the podcast today and remind you that you can download Uprooted on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get podcasts. If you like what you've heard, please give us a positive rating. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a good one.